The Old Testament of our Bible is sometimes daunting. Scan the pages of the good book and you will hear of genocide, violence, polygamy, and other hard-to-handle issues. Some might think the God of the Old Testament was different than our caring and compassionate Jesus. They are wrong. Our God is the God of the Old and the New Testament, whether we always understand it or not. So why read the Old Testament? It tells us where we've been, it tells us where we're going. We see the beauty of God's love, and it swells with prophecies about Jesus. We love the Old Testament because Jesus loves it. Join us as we continue our ongoing series, Origins, Studying the Bible Jesus Read. Amen. I just love hearing Miss Dorothy's voice every Sunday. Um, it's, you've got a beautiful voice. Um, so I am Jordan, Pastor Jordan. Uh, I'm one of the two pastors here at City Life Church. Our other pastor, Pastor Dale, um, is our primary teacher, but uh, every once in a while he uh, opens up the pulpit and allows me to preach, which I consider a great joy and privilege. So today I'm going to be uh, going through Exodus 18. Uh, if you've not been with us before, uh, we've been going through the books of Genesis and Exodus. Right now we're in Genesis, or, sorry, Exodus 18. If you need a Bible, we've got some at the back table there. There's uh, some hardbacks and some softbacks as well. Um, if you need one to take home, please do take one home. Uh, we we want to make sure that people have access and the ability to read God's Word. Um, also, you can read your Bible on your phones or check sports scores, like Dale always says, and I will never know the difference. Um, but we're going to be in Exodus 18. Si necesitas escuchar el sermón en español, tenemos dispositivos de traducción aquí en la mesa, esta costada de la sala. So we have Spanish translation available as well. Um, so, opening remarks. Um, I'm going to just go back through what we've been through in Exodus, because we're kind of in the middle of the book. Um, so the context of Exodus is God has this people called the Israelites, and he called a man named Abraham out of his home to be a people uh, known by this God. And uh, they eventually ended up in Egypt, where uh, at first they were welcomed and they were uh, a blessed part of the, the Egyptian um, kingdom. But uh, over time, they spent about 400 years there. Over time, they began to be oppressed, and they were treated as slaves. They became slaves. And um, the, the pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, um, treated them very badly. Well, they cried out to God, um, and God raises up a man named Moses, who was an Israelite. He was a Hebrew, but he was actually, by a fluke, by God's hand, I would say, uh, was actually raised in the king of Egypt's house. Um, and uh, so he, he lives in, in Pharaoh's house for about 40 years, and then he sees uh, an Egyptian beating one of his people, an Israelite, and he ends up killing the Egyptian. And now suddenly he's committed murder, and other people have seen it, so he has to flee. So he leaves his home of 40 years, goes out into the wilderness, ends up in a place called Midian, and uh, ends up getting married there, uh, basically builds a new life there, and then all of a sudden... God meets him in a burning bush and says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. 
I'm going to send you to go free my people who are being oppressed and who are slaves. And he kind of doesn't want to do this because the Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world at the time. This was the superpower. Egypt was the superpower of the day. And standing before Pharaoh, telling him what to do is probably not a good idea. But God convinces him, and Moses goes. And ultimately, uh, God does free his people with Moses. Um, he ends up having to send a bunch of plagues of like frogs and boils and, and gnats and darkness and hail and all these really terrible things just to get the Pharaoh to let the people go. And they finally leave Egypt, but Pharaoh decides, you know what, I'm kind of pissed. I don't like these people leaving. I'm just going to go wipe them all out. So he chases them down, and they're backed up against the Red Sea, nowhere to run. And God does this amazing miracle where he tells Moses to stick out his staff over the Red Sea and the waters part. And it says that they walked through the sea with a wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right. And they go through and they're saved. Not only that, but the Egyptians decide, okay, we've never seen anything like this, but you know what? We're going to still chase them down. So they go into the sea after them. And God says, Moses, stick out your staff again. And the walls of the water close down on the Egyptians and the army is no more. God has freed his people amazingly done works that no one has ever seen before. And now these people are, are in the wilderness. They're headed towards this promised land that God has said he's going to give them as a home. But it takes a little while to get there. And they're starting to get thirsty. They're starting to get hungry. They start to grumble and, and complain and whine to Moses. And again, God provides for his people. He, he gives them water that they can drink. He gives them bread from heaven called manna. And he gives them quail so that they'll even have meat to eat. Time and time again, God proves that he will care for his people. And so we're in the middle of this desert, and that's where we're at right now when we get to Exodus 18. I'm going to read verses 5 through 27. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, I'm coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. They asked each other how they had been and went into the tent. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that confronted them on the way, and how the Lord had rescued him. So everything I just went through, Moses is sharing in much bigger detail with his father-in-law, all the great things that God has done. Jethro, his father-in-law, rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses, father-in-law, in God's presence. The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people. And they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge when all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law, 
because the people come to inquire, come to me to inquire of God, whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another. I teach them God's statutes and laws. What you're doing is not good, Moses' father-in-law said to him. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you some advice, and God will be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and the laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. But you should select from the people able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophet. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring every major case, bring you every major case, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten your load, and they will bear it with you. If you do this, and God so directs you, you will be able to endure, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So Moses chose able men from all Israel and made them, judge, made them leaders over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged the people at all times, and they would bring the hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. Moses let his father-in-law go, and he journeyed to his own land. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, this testimony from Exodus of what you have done and what you are doing in the midst of your people. God, we pray in this moment that you would open our hearts to receive and quicken our minds to, to understand what you would have us to see from your word today. God, we pray for humble spirits and teachable hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So has anyone played the game Two Truths and a Lie? Where you tell a group of people three things about yourself, and two of them are true, and one of them is a lie, but they have to guess which one. It can be an interesting game. We're going to do something similar today. We're not going to actually play a game, but we're going to see two lies and a truth from Exodus 18. So there is this common phrase around Christians, and it sounds kind of nice. It sounds like a really comforting, wonderful thing to say, but it's not true. And when I see mature believers saying it over and over again, it kind of gets under my skin. And that brings us to our first point, our first lie, God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you heard this before, right? Well, this is not what we see for Moses here. The task is huge, maybe even bigger than you think. So Moses goes out and he goes to judge the people and his father-in-law is watching this kind of a circus and thinking like, what the heck are you doing? This, this makes no sense. People are standing around waiting for you to judge their cases from morning until evening. How is this sustainable? It's not. It, it, Jethro kind of says, hey man, you've been killing it with these people. You, I, what you did in Egypt, what God did through you, how you've been leading them and been faithful, man, you've been killing it. But this right here, this is killing you. Now, in Exodus 12, we get a count of how many people came out of Egypt. Well, sort of a count. It, it says that there were about 600,000 able-bodied men. What does that mean? Well, generally it was men who could serve in the military. 
And in a different part of Exodus, we, they tell us that it's men 23 years and older up until they're not able to like really fight anymore. So it's actually more kind of a count of how many households there are. So we're looking at maybe about 600,000 households in the nation of Israel. Well, how many people is that really? A lot of commentators have kind of taken a guess at it, uh, more of a conservative guess generally. They, they say it's maybe about 2.4 million, which if you think about a household, okay, you've got a husband, a wife, two kids, four people, four times 600,000 is 2.4 million people. That makes sense. I think it probably is a little higher than that. One reason why is we see that the scripture tells us that Israel is growing rapidly at this time. Now, if you have two parents who have two kids, you're not growing rapidly. That's keeping things the same because as the parents die, then we have two new people who are parents. Like you're keeping things steady. But if you have more kids than that, that's when you're growing. So chances are most households have more than two kids. Not only that, but this doesn't account for the elderly, the people who can't fight, you know? It doesn't count for grandmas, doesn't count for grandpas. It also doesn't count for orphans and widows. So I think there's probably more than 2.4 million, but that's, I mean, think of how many people that is. That's a lot of people. The city of San Diego alone has about 1.4 million. San Diego County has about 3.3 million. So we're somewhere in that range, but I would tend to lean towards probably about the size of San Diego County. This one man is leading all these people. Now, imagine what it would be like if everyone in the county of San Diego had to go to Mayor Falconer to hear their cases. Like, could you imagine him standing up in Petco Park saying, hey, anybody got any issues? Like, you know there's going to be a loud roar after that, you know? And people are going to be waiting up, lined up outside the door. Like, I, I imagine seeing this line of people waiting to be heard, and there's this guy with a clipboard coming by saying, what's your issue? Okay, what's your issue? Okay, what's your issue? So he comes to some, some woman who's you know, carrying a baby, and she's like, man, uh, my, my husband's left me. Like, I need some help. I need, I need to, to you know, say that I've got custody of the child. I, I need child support. I, I just need some help. It's like, okay, so your name is, uh, okay. You are docket number 234,186. We expect your case to be heard in about 18 to 20 years. <laughs> Not going to work, right? This, this makes no sense. How can one man listen to all the cases for, for that many people, right? The funny thing is, Moses is doing the best he can. He's trying. He's wanting to help. But sometimes our help is no help at all. He might be able to help a couple of people, but ultimately, he's frustrating more, and he's going to wear himself out. He's not going to be able to do the things that God is telling him to do because he's busy dealing with Fido chewed up Jethro's sandals yesterday, and he's pissed off about it. Like, he needs help. So when somebody says that God will not give you more than you can handle, it's not true. If God would give Moses the prophet who was taking the people out of Egypt more than he could handle, then what hope do any of us have? Like, God will definitely give us more than we can handle. Amen. And it took some wise advice from his father-in-law to change things. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, 
so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. He's telling us, you know what? This life is going to throw some stuff at you. It's going to be more than you think you can handle. But count it joy because God will use those things to make you a mature, complete believer and will greatly increase your faith. God sometimes puts us through trials and difficult situations in order to learn to trust him and rely on him. If you are going through some serious stuff in your life, it doesn't mean that you're being punished. It doesn't mean that God is angry at you. It doesn't mean that God stopped loving you. It means that God is giving you something, an opportunity to draw near to him, to say, God, help me with this. God, I need you to be near. And the amazing thing is, God uses those to deepen our faith, to make us a better Christian. And it's those times, saints who have been through the toughest things will say that God's presence is sweetest to them. You will experience God's presence. If you will dig into him, if you will press into him, he will be sweeter and dearer to you in those times than any other time. So if God gives us more than we can handle, it's pretty obvious that we're going to need help, right? That brings us to our second lie. I got this. I don't need help from anybody. I've heard this too. Like, this is kind of actually my background in a way. It was kind of an unspoken rule in my family that, like, don't ask for help. Nobody actually ever said that, but the way they kind of reacted when you act, wanted help, it was like, I'd, I'd love to help you, but, you know. Now, they would love to be generous. <laughs> they would love to be generous if they saw you in need, and you, but you weren't saying anything. Then, you know, then they would help out. But if you're asking for help, eh. So, we see that Jethro tells Moses in verse 18, you will certainly wear out both yourselves and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you some advice. And he gives him this advice on raising up good, trustworthy leaders to help carry out the mission. Jethro says, stop trying to do this alone. Go find some trustworthy dudes and carry this to help carry its burden with you. Now, we don't always have good relationships with our family, and sometimes, you know, the in-laws can be kind of annoying, right? <laughs> no, not at all, never. <laughs> How might Moses have responded? If, if he didn't go along with this, how, you know, I kind of looking at all the, the Insta... I'm not going to go into that. Anyway, how might he responded? I kind of wrote down some thoughts. Who are you, Jethro? You think because you're my father-in-law, you can just tell me what to do? You're a priest in the middle of nowheresville, Midian. Whoop-de-doo. I, I was a member of Pharaoh's family. God told me to take these people out of Egypt. Where were you when I brought down hail and frogs and boils and darkness on the Egyptian's head? Where were you when I split the sea and then caused it to crash down, destroying the greatest army on the earth? Can you split a rock and bring out a river for people to drink from? Can you call down bread from heaven? Didn't think so. No, you can't. 
God speaks to me directly. God himself put me here to lead these people. So I don't need you to tell me what to do. But that's not what Moses does. He could have gone that direct, that way, but that would have been prideful. Moses isn't arrogant here. He humbly accepts Jethro's wisdom and puts his advice into action. Now, if City Life Church were all on Dale's shoulders, if he had to lead every city group, every growth group, if he had to set up, lead worship, preach, tear down, do all the counseling, if he had to do all this stuff by himself, he would have worn himself out long ago. But Dale is a humble man. He intentionally goes to other pastors and asks for their advice, asks for their help. He comes to me with stuff and says, like, this is where I think we're going to go, but I want your input. Like, he could, he could just ignore me and say, this is what we're doing. But he doesn't do that. He intentionally pours into people so that they can help lead other people, so that we can have people who uh, are able to lead growth groups and able to lead uh, city groups and, and have the, the Holy Spirit do church. None of this would exist if it were all on Dale's shoulders. In fact, that ain't a church. That's a cult. Okay? This is why we have partnership. If you're new to City Life, you may not understand that. Some churches have membership. It's, it's kind of basically the same idea, but we, we like to call it partnership because we want to be a family that lifts one another up, that carries one another's burdens, that... Um, that, that carries on the church together. It's not just about one person standing up here on a stage. It's about all of us living life together. Now, Dale was recently out of town, and we had a bit of a situation come up. And for a brief moment, I thought I was going to have to handle it by myself for a couple of reasons. Like, I didn't want to, but I wasn't sure that I could ask for help. Thank God, other people stepped in and helped me. Like, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to several people in this church um, who, who stepped in to help me. And I, I can't go into a lot of details, but you guys know who you are. And thank you. I love you. And man, I probably wouldn't be up here talking right now if I, if, if I were doing it by myself. Um, the Bible in, in Galatians 6.2 tells us, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. You fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? God, Christ told us when he was on earth that the two greatest commandments were to love God and to love our neighbor. This, carrying one another's burdens as the church, this is fulfilling both because we are loving God by being humble enough to help others and we are obviously loving other people by carrying their burdens. Sometimes it takes humility to accept help. I know this personally, like, I have trouble sometimes accepting help. And it's prideful and it's wrong. Sometimes it takes humility to give help, to step out of your comfort zone and say, you know, this is awkward for me, I don't know what to do, but I, I want to help. Both of those can take humility at times. But this is what it looks like to be members of God's family, to help one another. We all have different gifts, we all have different needs, we all have different resources that someone else needs. No one in the church 
should have to bear everything alone. And no one in the church should believe that they have nothing to offer. Everyone who is a believer has needs, but also has gifts for the church. One thing in particular that every believer has, whether they are new to the faith or whether they've been walking with Jesus for a long time, is they've got a story. Everybody has a story of God's redemption in their life. That brings us to our third point and some truth. The good news of what God has done caused Jethro to believe. It says in verse 8, Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that confronted them on the way and how the Lord rescued them. Jethro rejoiced over the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. This is evangelism at its simplest. Those of us who follow Jesus, we are told, we are commanded that we need to share the good news of Jesus with other people. Sometimes that can be a little bit of a a daunting task. But one of the best ways is to just simply share what God has done in your life. Now, Jethro was a high priest of Midian. Midian is a different nationality than Israel. He's not a Hebrew. He's not one of God's chosen people. He probably worships other gods, or at least had prior to this. Not only had he probably worshipped other gods, but because he was a priest, he probably offered sacrifices for his people to other gods. In fact, it's possible that Jethro had never even heard of the God of the Bible before Moses came running back talking about some craziness of a burning bush. That may have been his first hearing about Yahweh, the God of Israel. But now, because of Moses' testimony, because his explanation of what God has done, Jethro becomes a believer. He proclaims the greatness of God and goes and worships him. Not only that, but he joins with Moses and the priests and the elders of Israel, and they have a meal together in God's presence. That's amazing. Here is this guy who is not one of God's people, who is an outsider, who is a foreigner, worships God and is brought into the family. They have a meal in God's presence. If that doesn't sound like communion to me, man, I don't know what is. Now, sometimes it can be scary to share your faith. You might worry, like, what if they ridicule me? What if they reject me? What if I lose a friend? I haven't read the whole Bible yet. What if, what if I say something wrong? What if they ask me questions that I can't answer? Maybe I shouldn't say anything. We often feel that pressure, right? If I don't say exactly the right thing, Maybe they won't believe. And if they don't believe because I didn't say the right thing, they'll go to hell and it'll be my fault. Oh man, what a wait. But that's not how this works. I kind of feel like that lady on the Facebook commercial. That's not how any of this works. (laughs) 
So this wasn't originally in my notes, but I kind of uh, thought of it this morning. So some of you know I'm a Simpsons fan. And uh, the Simpsons are supposed to be the typical American family, but they're kind of, you know, broken. <laughs> um, but they live next to this family called the Flanders. And the Flanders are churchy McChurch, Bible-thumping, everything Jesus. Um, and there's this one episode where Bart is over at the Flanders, and he plays their one and only video game. Because... <laughs> Dale knows where I'm going. Because they're Bible-thumpers, of course, it's, it's got to be something churchy. So he's playing this game where rather than shooting aliens or shooting zombies, he's going around shooting Bibles at people who don't believe, trying to turn them into Christians. <laughs> and he's going after this one guy. He must be a, a boss unbeliever or something, but he's, he's having a hard time. He's chasing him down, chasing him down, missing, missing, missing. Finally, he hits him and he goes, yes, I got him. And Rod or Todd, one of the, the two Flanders boys says, no, you only winged him. He's just a Unitarian. That's not how this works. Like, it's not on your effort, it's not on your ability to save anyone. In fact, you can't do it. Right. You cannot save anybody by yourself. Right. You can use all the right words, you can have all the convincing proofs in the world, and if the Holy Spirit doesn't work in somebody's heart, it's worthless. On the other side, though, the amazing thing is, you can be stuttering, you can be the most confusing, rambling evangelist that ever happened, but the Holy Spirit can take your faithfulness and change a life. The Bible in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 16 tells us, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. I'm gonna pause here for a second. Who could harm you for doing the right thing and sharing your faith. But even if they do, even if they oppress you, even if they ridicule you, you're blessed. Okay, so I'm going to continue with the scripture. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. I love this verse. Be ready at any time to give a defense for the reason that you have a hope. You don't have to have all the right answers. You don't have to have a doctorate in apologetics. It's okay to say to somebody, you know what, that's a great question. I don't know the answer, but I'm going to try and find out. You don't have to use super spiritual words, all the right theological language. In fact, if we look at this story, Jethro didn't have perfect theology. What did he say? He said, God, or Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is the greatest of the gods. Now, those of us who have studied scripture will, will say, there is only one God. All the rest are imposters. There may be some spiritual powers or things that pretend to be a god, but they're not God. There is one God. Jethro doesn't know this. He has worshipped other gods for the rest of his life and now is saying, this one God is the greatest. And I believe that to be a true, faithful confession. But he doesn't have all his theology figured out. He doesn't have it all together. And that's okay. 
So when you're, when you're sharing your faith, you don't have to communicate all the right doctrine. You don't have to perfect, correct everything that they may have said that's wrong. If somebody makes a true, honest confession of faith, if they come and repent, God will work all the rest of it out in time. In fact, none of us in this room are probably going to have everything right until we meet Jesus face to face. So remember, you can't save anybody. The Holy Spirit can. You don't have to be perfect. The Holy Spirit can use your faithfulness. So what is the gospel? What is this thing that we're trying to share? Briefly, it's we're all born with hearts that want to sin against God. We want to do the wrong thing. For some of us, it's selfishness. For some of us, it's wanting to use other people. For some of us, it's... I don't know, stealing, it's murder, it's, you know, all these things. Some of us think that we're not that bad. But from God's perspective, all of us have broken God's law. But God was so, mad, was so lavish in his mercy and compassion that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die the death that we deserved. He didn't deserve it, we deserved it. He did that so that we might be forgiven for our guilt for the debt that we owe God. He did it so that we might be free from our evil. But Jesus didn't stay dead. No, three days later, he rose to life again. He proved that he was victorious over death and victorious over sin that results in death. So he has the power to free us from the slavery that we have to sin. Any of us who have trusted in him and have turned away from our sins, saying, I'm going to try and follow Jesus. I'm going to try and turn away. I know I can't do it in my own power, but God can work in me. We have the assurance that one day, as we follow Jesus, we will spend the rest of our life with God. So you can't lose your salvation because you say the wrong thing when you're sharing your faith. You, you can't lose your your salvation because you, you make a mistake that you fall back into old sins. The important thing is that you continue to pursue and press into Christ. So be prepared to tell your story. You don't have to get into all the nitty-gritty details, but give people a reason for your hope. You might just gain a new brother or sister in the faith and have the privilege to watch Jesus begin to change a life. But that's also kind of oh, a little too fast. This also brings up a little bit of a question. Is God your hope? Is he the great reward that you're striving for? What does your ideal life look like? Is it a nice house, comfortable living? Is it a rewarding career, successful kids? If you could get any of those things without God, would you? Or would you say, God is more important to the point that you would be willing to abandon all those other goals in order to keep God in your life? This is kind of what it means to have faith, to put your trust in Jesus, believing that life with him is better than all those things without him. So in conclusion, this life is going to be full of difficulty going to be full of hard times, stress, trouble. But God never wants his children to face life alone. 
He created the church specifically so that we could have each other's backs. He gave each of us the spirit because he wants us to walk with him through every step, every valley, every hard time. He wants to be there with us. He wants to be our joy and our greatest treasure. Heavenly Father, God, we are too proud sometimes. We are often selfish and we turn our backs on you for worldly things. God, we, we want to unburden ourselves from the world. And God, in this silent moment, would you just hear our prayers of confession as we pour out our hearts to you, saying all the things that, that we have messed up, all the things that we have chosen over you. God, help us to confess and repent of those things. Jesus, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for adopting us into your family. I pray that you would fill our hearts with your hope, with your life. I pray that we would see you as the greatest treasure we could ever have. That we would live our lives to be near you and to have others be near you as well. Thank you for forgiving us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.